Wonderful words of promise there about how the Lord looks on the lowly and the oppressed and he rescues them and brings them into his courts to sing his praise, rejoicing in his new life. Our scripture reading for this morning, our Old Testament reading, comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 56, the first 12 verses. Isaiah 56, 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs, who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer. For all nations, the Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, says, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. All you beasts of the field come to devour all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yes, they are greedy dogs, which never have enough. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, everyone for his own gain, from his own territory. Come, one says, I will bring wine, and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today, and much more abundant. Our New Testament text, Matthew 21, verses 12 through 22. This will be our sermon text this morning. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. 
and said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless your word to our hearts. Lord, we know that we do not have in ourselves any good, any life, any ability to repent and turn to you. You alone give life. So we pray that the word now from your very mouth would come through your Spirit's powerful working to give us life in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. Don't you love going through security at the airport? There's always something a little bit humiliating about it. Um, I think it's probably especially true when you fly with kids. Um, A few months ago, we were flying to Texas. Um, and it was on the trip home, I remember feeling a particular twinge of embarrassment. Um, because on the trip down, my, my carry-on bag had been pretty neatly organized. Um, but by the time we were heading back home, I had some you know, snack wrappers stuffed in it from the kids. It had some of their games stuffed in it. It had my cell phone charger wires all crumpled up and kind of half hanging out. It, it was all a mess inside of it. And I did my best to button up the bag tight so you wouldn't see any of that. But I knew, as soon as I stuck it in that little gray bin and sent it through the TSA scanner, the guy sitting there watching it was going to see all of it. And I felt that little twinge of embarrassment um, that my exterior didn't match the interior. The outside and the inside didn't match. Now, loved ones, we are so often the same way with our hearts before the Lord. Um, we are we are uh, we are quick to to put on a, a mask of, of outward behavior, uh, to to put up a a front, a facade of of something that looks good, to hide what's really going on, the mess that's really going on inside. Um, now, don't get me wrong. There is a time and a place to, if you will, put the fence around the dumpster like they do at the restaurants. Right? We don't need to. We should be polite, courteous, well mannered. But, but that's a very different thing from, from having a hypocritical heart, from, from putting out a lie that, that, you, that you are something that, that, that you're really not on the inside. When you, you act like a Christian on the outside, but inside, your heart is a thousand miles away from Christ. God hates performative faith. He hates faith that's an act. And he, he sees our hearts. Right? He knows exactly what's going on inside. He's no fool. We can't pull the wool over his eyes. He knows. And, and, and few things provoke his, his righteous and holy wrath more than an outward life of obedience with an inward heart of, of, of disregard for him. 
As we see Jesus in his earthly ministry, I think one of the reasons so many people seem uncomfortable around him is because he does see what's going on, going on on the inside. Um, uh, he, 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 he can look right through you as it were, right into your heart. He can, he can, it's like the bag going through the scanner in the airport. He can see the pride. He can see the bitterness. He can see the, the discontent. He can see the jealousy. He can see the lust. And he calls it out um, to those who are around him. John 2.25 says he knew what was in man. That's uncomfortable to be around. It's uncomfortable to be around that. Because we want to, we want to be self, you know, self-righteous, good enough in ourselves, not to have our sins and our flaws exposed. It's uncomfortable to be around Jesus. Unless, and this is what we see also in the Gospels, it's uncomfortable to be around him unless you are humbled, unless you're ready to admit what's inside, ready to admit the sin. Poor in spirit and, and not uh, putting up a front. No, not, not, not hanging on to a boast of your own goodness or righteousness, but just crying out to him for mercy. And that's what we see in the passage here. We see Christ coming after hypocritical hearts and calling us to humble faith in him and in his righteousness and his ability to cleanse and his ability to make us to bear fruit and not in ourselves. Uh, the passage unfolds in these two related episodes. The first about, uh, surrounds the temple, and then the second of them surrounds the tree. So those will be our two headings that we'll use to organize our thoughts together this morning. First, the temple, and then we'll look at the tree. Uh, so first of all, the, the temple. It's, it's at the beginning of Passover week. Um, so Jerusalem's full of, of all the people who have come from all around to celebrate this high holy, uh, high holy feast of Judaism. And they're there, they're offering sacrifices. And if you think about it, if you've got a long trip to make, you don't want to be taking along a bunch of animals for sacrifices. Uh, it's much easier just to go to Jerusalem and, and buy them there. So all around the temple area that's crowded with these vendors who are selling, uh, selling animals for sacrifices, exchanging currency so that people can pay the temple tax. People are buying and selling, and there's this busy market all around the temple area and, and even infringing on the temple grounds. Um, and no doubt people taking advantage of, uh, of, of each other um, and, uh, and, um, and exploiting this opportunity for financial gain. So this is the scene that as Jesus comes up to the temple, that greets him at the temple. Um, how does he respond to this? Well, he's angry. He drives them all out. All of them. He overturns the tables. He, he turns their chairs over. He drives them all out of the temple. Um, why does he do this? It seems like such a stark contrast with what we saw last week. Right? Last week, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, Prince of Peace. Now, overturning the tables, driving people out of the temple. Wrath, judgment. What's going Why is Jesus doing this here? What is he trying to communicate? He tells us in verse 13. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. He is full of righteous indignation because the temple has been 
filled with people serving their own interests instead of God. It's been hijacked by those who are self-interested rather than God-interested. Gone is the solemn and reverent worship of God. Gone is the fear of the Lord. Gone is humility and, and awe before God and holy worship. And in its place is hypocrisy and greed and ambition and exploitation. Of course he's going to be angry. His actions here, as well as his words, show us, um, uh, show, show us significant and important things about, about what he's communicating to us. Um, his actions show us, first of all, that he has come to purify his, his people and, and to purify the temple. Um, there's a prophecy in the book of Malachi, chapter 3 which talks about how God himself will come to his people. He'll send his messenger to his people and he will purify them, uh, purify the temple and purify their worship. It says this, um, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And then they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. As Jesus comes to the temple, he sees the profane worship, the self-worship, the ambition, and the greed, and the pride, and the hypocrisy. And he's coming to his own house as the Lord God. It's his holy place. And he sees all this going on. And so he comes like bleach to wash out this stain of sin. He comes like a hot furnace. To, to, to refine all the dross that's gotten into the, the silver. Um, he's coming to make his people holy again. So that's what he's doing. That's why he's driving this, the, the, this out of the temple. It has no place there in the worship of God. He's also doing this. He's also calling out in particular the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. Um, the scribes and Pharisees are supposed to be keeping God's worship pure. It's the priest's job to keep the, the worship of God pure, to keep the temple holy before the Lord. Um, and instead, they have led God's people further and further away. They've, they've allowed this, they've tolerated this, they've sanctioned it, the, the, this uh, trading that's going on inside the temple. So Jesus quotes to them Isaiah 56, verse 7, to say to them that God's house is supposed to be a house of prayer. And we read this earlier, and, and you probably heard there in that passage of Isaiah 56 how, how Christ is calling for this to be a house of prayer, but he's also uh, condemning those who have led the people astray into their idolatry. Isaiah 56.11 says, They are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. He doubles down on this, uh, this, this, this criticism here by saying that the vendors in the temple and the Jewish authorities who've sanctioned them are making God's temple into a den of thieves. Um, that's referencing a prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 7, which says, 
some striking things. It says, it says this, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? He's quoting that prophecy to say, look, back then in Jeremiah's day, they were doing the exact same thing that you're doing now. They were doing whatever they want, living whoever they liked, and then going to the temple and worshiping God and using the temple like a good luck charm to say, well, we'll be fine. We'll be safe. We've got the temple. Um, Therefore, God will protect us. The, the Jews of Jesus, they are doing the same, same exact thing. And if you boil it all down, the essence of what they're doing, that Jesus is, is, is criticizing them for, is idolatry. They've not come to the temple to worship God. They've come to the temple to worship themselves. They haven't come to pray. They've come to make a profit. Um, they, they, they have not come because they want to know and love and, and worship and enjoy God, but because they see religion as a means of control and power and influence and self-importance. They've hijacked it for their own purposes. And of course, that's what we do, isn't it? So often, um, we make our Christianity about a thousand different things, but not about God. We make it about something we want for ourselves. We do it, I go to church or I follow God because he'll give me a, a better life or a better community or better government or better culture. Um, he'll improve this or that thing. He'll give me some power or control here or there, but not because I want to know him. John Piper, I heard, put it once like this, that we make God and the gospel into a ticket to get into the show that we want to see. And when the show starts, you throw the ticket away. Right? We, God doesn't... He becomes the means, not the end, not the goal of the gospel. Loved ones, our Lord Jesus will not allow His people, He will not allow us to have any other person or cause or thing at the center of our relationship with God at the center of our faith, only God himself. So, loved ones, are you here this morning to meet with God, to know and worship and love God? Is that why you're a Christian? Is that why you come to church? Because you love God. Anything less than that is hijacking Christianity for your own purpose. Now think of it like this. If I took my wife out to a lovely dinner day, and while we're there, I said, Honey, you know, I really just wanted to have a nice dinner. I don't really care that you're here. I just wanted some good food. Or if I took my boys to a baseball game, and then during the game I turned to them and said, You know what? I don't really care that you're here. I just wanted an excuse to go to a game. No! It should be the other way around. I don't care about the food. We can go to McDonald's. I love you. I don't care about the game. I just want to spend some time with you. Which is your faith? How do you come to church? Which is your, which is your Christianity? 
Don't worship God or follow Christ for anything less than Christ. This is what Jesus is calling out. It's this that he's cleansing the temple of. But he doesn't just drive the sin out. Notice what he does next. He, he, he cleanses the temple, he empties it, but then he fills it with what should be in it. Notice this. Um, verse 14. He fills it with salvation. Verse, verse 14. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. All these people with physical deformities, they would often be outside the temple hoping for some loose change from those going in and out, making a good profit inside. They'd be begging outside the doors, but they weren't really welcomed inside. Uh, Some some Jewish sects went went far enough to say that that no one with a physical defect could could go into the temple or or be, be part of the kingdom of heaven when it came. That the blind and the lame had no place in the, in the kingdom. Um, but now that Jesus has gone into the temple, and now that he's driven out the proud, hypocritical idolaters, who comes streaming in? It's the blind and the lame. It's the deformed and the weak and the helpless. They come streaming in. Jesus has, has turned the, the temple from a, a, a marketplace to a hospital. And now they're all coming, streaming into Jesus. They're welcomed by Jesus. And, and, and why is it that they're welcomed? Why did he drive out the people, the money changers and, 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 the, and the vendors? Why did he drive them out? And why does he welcome in the, 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 the sufferers? They're all equal sinners. It's because... Those he drove out were, were, were there because of their own self-interest and self-righteousness and pride, their own personal ambition. But, but those whom he's welcoming in are, are coming fully aware of their sin. Not self-righteous, but crying out to him for mercy and for help. They're there helpless, looking for the Savior. They're poor in spirit, humbly crying out for mercy. And as they all come in, Jesus heals them all. A word here, a touch there, and, and, and people are restored and, and made whole. It's this wonderful moment where heaven is breaking in again through the ministry of Christ, where the end of the ages is, is leaping back into history and, and puncturing into time and, and bringing, bringing a taste of the new heavens and new earth through the, through the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. It's a wonderful moment, picture of, of what Christ will do in, in such full, glorious consummation when the kingdom comes in its power. So Jesus is filling the temple with a moment of, of end-time salvation breaking in. And then he also fills the temple with praise, with genuine praise. Before, I'm sure there was praise going on um, but it wasn't genuine. It was, it was really about just kind of going through this, going through the motions because this gives us some kind of position or power or, or, or influence. But now there's genuine praise breaking out. Um, once again, you'll notice they're singing the chorus, as it were, of Psalm 118, just like they were when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem on the donkey. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the Son of David. They're saying, here's the Messiah. 
And they're, not, they're, they're singing not to impress anyone or gain anyone's attention or, 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 or get influence. They're simply singing because they're seeing that Jesus saves. And they're rejoicing that he saves. And, and notice who's leading the singing. It's not the, not the choir, not the priests and Levites and temple singers. It's the children. It's the lowest and the least on the social hierarchy. You see how Christ is surrounded by the poor in spirit, the humble and the lowly? He's saving them and they're praising him. So Jesus fills up the temple with these things. But the chief priests and the scribes are still there. And they're watching what's going on. And they are getting angrier and angrier about it. They're indignant, the text tells us. They're angry that Jesus is acting like he owns the place. Which, of course, he does. Uh, It's his temple, isn't it? Um, But Jesus is exposing them as hypocrites and frauds, right? Their their hearts are getting exposed in the x-ray of his vision to show them that they are sinners, that they don't love God. They don't love the Messiah. They don't love the kingdom. They just love their comfort and their own position and their power. And they see Jesus as a threat to that, and they want to destroy him. Um, They don't care that all these people are being healed. Uh, They don't care that the children are breaking out in praise. They're just angry uh, that Jesus is so popular. Jesus responds with devastating words. Uh, He quotes Psalm 8 to them. He says, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. He could have have finished the verse, but he didn't need to because these uh, these priests and Levites, uh, scribes, they, they, they would have known the rest of the verse from from Psalm 8, which says to silence the enemy and the avenger. Jesus is warning them. He says, these children are praising me to silence those who refuse to. The foe, the avenger. You guys, is what he's saying. You, chief priests and scribes, are joining the side of those who hate Israel and fight against God's people. You're becoming the enemies of God's people by rejecting me. I want to think about this for a minute, loved ones. Think about what's going on as as the chief priests and the scribes over and over and over, and once again here, reject Christ. Do they know what they're doing? What do you think? Do they realize their hypocrisy? Do you think they knew they were the enemy as Jesus is pointing out to them that they are? Perhaps if you dug deep enough in their hearts, I think you probably would find an awareness deep down that they were in rebellion against, against God. But I think they pile on layer after layer of self-delusion to the point where they think that they are right and Jesus is wrong. Their hypocrisy is so deeply ingrained that even when Christ points it out to them, they, they won't acknowledge it and they won't, they won't repent of it. That, that's the way pride and self-righteousness and hypocrisy works. We keep putting it on day after day after day after day, and it becomes stuck there. And, and, and it's hard to realize how hypocritical, proud, and self-righteous our hearts have become. It's easy to see other people as hypocrites and self-righteous and to call them out for it. But oh, hard, hard, isn't it, to admit that we are. Um, we, we hold on to our hypocrisy because it offers us a false gospel it's a way to justify ourselves. Right? I, I, I know my heart isn't, right, isn't good enough 
It's, it's sinful. It's a mess. So I've got to have this, this exterior to protect me, to justify me before others and before God. Um, we, we, we fabricate this threadbare covering of righteousness for ourselves by our hypocrisy. And we don't want to let go because if that goes, we're exposed all the more and ashamed. But our righteousness can't cover ourselves. Hypocrisy, a mask, is no justification for us before God. Um, we cannot cover up our worship of ourselves with self-righteousness. We cannot purify our own hearts of its idols. We cannot do a performance that will do this for us. Our Lord Jesus Christ offers us something better. He holds out to hypocrites like you and like me uh, something much, much better. A real righteousness. A thorough righteousness. A to-the-heart righteousness. His own. And he offers it to us to receive it. He comes to cleanse. We said earlier, he comes to cleanse the temple. But next year, Passover, these guys are going to be back. How does Jesus really cleanse the temple? Well, he becomes the temple. He is the temple. He's dwelling place of God with man. The holy place where God himself meets with man. He comes, he takes on the sin of God's people, and he bears it to the cross, and he purifies us, he cleanses us of all our hypocritical false worship and pride. He cleanses all that away on the cross for us. And he makes us holy. And he justifies us. So let go of the hypocrisy. Confess it to him and, and, and run to him. He gives the freedom, the sweet freedom of his righteousness, which justifies you and his cleansing, which truly purifies you. So you don't have to try to do that for yourself. Turn to him for that, loved ones. You must. You must. If you don't, you face the wrath of God, the curse of God. That's what we see next as we turn now from the temple to the tree. The wrath of God. Jesus drives home the warning for us here that Christ will curse performative faith. And he calls us to genuine, prayerful faith. Um, the next episode here is, is of this, this fig tree. Um, at, at first, the, the next few verses, moving from the temple and the action there to the, to the tree, it seems, seems somewhat odd, doesn't it? It's kind of a puzzling little story. Matthew didn't take the time to put in the account of Lazarus being raised from the dead, but he puts this story in? Why? Um, it seems kind of strange. Jesus sees this fig tree. He's hungry. He goes to look for figs. There's no figs. He curses the tree, and it withers and dies. What's the point? Um, well, it's not showing us Christ losing his temper. Uh, it's not showing us that Christ, too, uh, was petty sometimes. That's not at all what's going on here. Those, those charges have been leveled at, at Christ in this account. Um, Christ is, is acting out a parable for us. He was doing that as he cleansed the temple. Now he's acting out another parable for us about, about God's judgment on performative faith. Um, several things we see here. Uh, first, remember, um, uh, Mark's account tells us that it's not the season for figs yet. Uh, so this tree 
is, an, is the exception. Uh, fig trees would become leafy and, and filled with fruit at the same time. The leaves and the fruit grow together. So if the fig tree has leaves, it's, it's, you would expect it to have, to have fruit as well. Um, it's not yet the season for figs, so this tree is standing out. It has leaves already. So you'd expect it to have the fruit too. Um, it, it seems to be producing early. From a distance, you'd say that's, a, that, that's an exemplary fig tree ahead of its time. Uh, it's producing leaves. It's probably got the best fruit of all. So Jesus goes to it, and on closer inspection, there's no fruit. So he curses it, and, and it withers. He gives it over to its fruitlessness. Why? Why? He's doing it right after the encounter with the religious leaders who had performative faith. Lots of leaves, right? The chief priests, the scribes, they had all the leaves. They looked good from the distance, right? They, 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 they've, they've got the show of religion, but no real fruit. Just a hypocritical mask. And Jesus is saying, if, if you don't have fruit, if it's just a veneer, then you face the wrath and curse of God. That's a sobering thought. How do you make sure this doesn't happen to you? What's the fruit that you should be bearing? Um, it's not the fruit of outward forms, right? That's the leaves of the tree. The chief priests, scribes, they have plenty of the outward stuff. They could quote chapter and verse. They came faithfully to worship. They knew how to offer their sacrifices the right way. They made it their life's work to obey every single one of God's commandments outwardly. And, and then some even added to God's commandments to make more. But what did they not have? Love for him, the Lord. Love for each other. They real, didn't realize that the whole law is about loving God and loving your neighbor. They had the outward form, but none of the inward reality. And all of it came to a climax as they rejected Jesus Christ himself and decided to destroy him. He comes as their covenant Lord and maker and redeemer, and they want to kill him. And they have no love for him. So the fruit that we need to have is love. Love to God. Love to Christ. Do you have that fruit? Not just the outward leaves of, of performance and a formal obedience, but an inward heart full of trust for Christ and love for Christ, devotion to Christ, resting in Christ. We need to have that or we'll be cursed. But how do we get that? We don't just need to know we need the fruit. We need to know how we get the fruit. How do we become fruitful? Not a performative faith, but a real, fruitful, obedient, loving, heartfelt faith. We don't produce the fruit ourselves. Jesus tells us this in John 15. He says, I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If we are going to bear the fruit that we must bear, the fruit of loving, faithful, motivated by joy towards God, obedience. If we're going to bear that kind of fruit, we need to be 
in the tree of Christ. He is the one who is himself the tree who produces fruit. He is the blessed man of Psalm 1 whose leaf does not wither, who yields its fruit in its season. He is true Israel, faithful, obedient, fruitful. And so we need him. The one who was never a hypocrite, but whose life was full of the perfect fruit of obedience to God. We need His fruitfulness at work in us, producing fruit through us. And how do we get that? How do we get Him? That's what faith is. Receives Him, rests on Him, and lays hold of Him. Prayerful faith. We see Christ direct our attention to this in the next three verses, to, to prayer. Disciples are impressed with how he's cursed the fig tree and it's immediately died. Um, how did you do it, Jesus? Um, that's amazing. Uh, Jesus says, well, um, if you have faith and don't doubt, you can say to this mountain, move into the sea, and it would do it. Some people take that to mean that if you just believe something hard enough, it'll happen. That you'll make it happen by believing that it will happen. If you just believe, you'll get an A on the test. You'll get an A on the test. That has not proved true in my experience. Um, if, you just, if you just believe something hard enough, it will, it will come to pass. Um, is that what Jesus is saying? Not at all. That view of faith puts all the emphasis where? On the person having the faith. It puts, it's a faith-centered faith. Faith is never faith-centered. Faith is God-centered. Faith is Christ-centered. The faith he's talking about isn't, isn't having confidence in how well you trust God, but in the trustworthiness of God, and the power of God. Faith is not strength. Faith is weakness. It's, it's acknowledging you are completely insufficient for any good and you need God to do anything. It's knowing that God is strong, good, wise, gracious, sufficient, just, true, that He's with you. That's the kind of faith Christ is calling for. A faith where you don't doubt, not because you have so much confidence in your ability to believe, but where you don't doubt because you know God. And you love Him and trust Him. Now, what we've been talking about, right? Living lives of real fruitfulness and not hypocrisy um, to the glory of God. That's harder than moving a mountain into an ocean. To be a person who is not a hypocrite is an impossible thing for any of us to do on our own. So we, 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 what do we need to do well, we need Christ and we receive Him by faith. This, is a, this passage is calling us to, to pray, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, take away my doubt. Lord, take away my reliance on my own threadbare righteousness and my hypocrisy and give me Your righteousness and give me confidence that it's enough for me. Brothers and sisters, Christ gives us this wonderful promise here. Whatever you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Because He Himself is able to give. He gives us this, 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 this promise. He calls us to pray. He calls us to faith. 
So pray that you be free from hypocrisy, that He would take your heart, that He would wash it clean so that you would not fear God's gaze or anyone else's, but you'd stand righteous in Christ. Pray for fruitfulness. Pray for genuine, heartfelt, wholehearted obedience and love to Him. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we thank You that You have given us our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer. We pray that You would cleanse us in Him, hide us in Him, grant us fruitfulness in Him. We pray all these things in His name. Amen.